Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this year's Tribeca Film Festival, which we're now saying is the first one it's ever snowed at, even though it's the 13th annual. Um, I'm really excited to introduce you to our talk today. It's the first in a series of three Tribeca Talks Industry Masterclass series, so by the end of the week, you should be able to make a film yourself. Um, you'll know everything about editing, sound design, and we also have a cinematography talk on Monday. Um, I'd like to thank Dolby for their incredible support of the festival and for presenting this program with us and introduce our moderator and panelists. Um, we have Glenn Kaiser from Dolby, Susan Jacobs, and Skip Lucey. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I get you. All right, so one of the, one of the first uh, important lessons uh, for shooting is to make sure that you are uh, that your sound is synced up. So uh, I'm, we're we're doing a poor man's slate right now. So okay, <laughs> thanks for coming out. So I actually I I have a, a question to start, which is um, you know for the audience members, how many how many filmmakers do we have uh, here today? Awesome, great, and uh, how many just film fans? Good. Good. I love a good, knowledgeable audience. So uh, my name is Glenn Kaiser, and I am the director of, of the Dolby Institute, which is a new uh, initiative of Dolby Labs uh, that we created a little over a year ago. And the idea behind the Dolby Institute is basically, it's very simple. Uh, we, we reach out to uh, new and, and young filmmakers, uh, writers, directors, artists, and, and all different uh, media, if it's film or broadcast or uh, especially we've, we've started an exciting new program in conjunction with the YouTube studios uh, for the, for the, web, uh, the made for web community. And uh, we reach out with, uh, with technical uh, training information uh, and, uh, and inspiration about how to use picture and sound more creatively to help you tell your stories. So uh, I'm really pleased to be here. Uh, this is the second time we've done a, a panel at Tribeca. We, 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 did, we did one last year as well. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and had this opportunity to talk to you guys about uh, sound design and, uh, and music uh, for film. So uh, I'm going to not waste any more time um, and introduce our esteemed panelists. On, uh, on, uh, on my right, I have my cheat sheet here so I don't leave anything out. On my right, we have uh, Susan Jacobs, who is a fantastic uh, music supervisor uh, whose credits uh, include Capote and Little Miss Sunshine. And she also works uh, with the director, David o, uh, David o. Russell. So she did Silver Linings Playbook and, uh, and American Hustle. And also has a film in the festival at, in Tribeca. You, you did uh, uh, Ira Sachs' movie, uh, yeah, Love is Strange. Love is Strange. Mm -hmm. And then uh, to her right is uh, Skip Livesey, who is the uh, fantastic uh, sound designer and mixer, uh, who uh, I've been a fan of for many, many years. He... Uh, Principally, uh, is is I think probably most well known for doing every single one of the Coen Brothers movies. So uh, from Blood Simple on, which you must have done when you were about twelve, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, and uh, and I'll tease him a little bit and, and congratulate him publicly. Uh, Skip just won the Oscar a few weeks ago for his for his work on Gravity. So. <laughs> So the way, the way uh, we usually do these discussions is, uh, is show some clips and, uh, and then have conversation about what we've just seen and heard and how it came to be. 
uh, and then and then open it up for questions. So we're going to start off uh, with a with a, a clip from uh, Inside Lewin Davis, uh, which was uh, I think a, a really fantastic film. Do you want to set this up? Uh, how many people have seen the film? Everyone. Awesome. Okay, so it's it's. You'll remember this when you see it as the pivotal point, I think, in the movie. Uh, we're certainly um, testing out, testing the waters. Um, Lewin is about how successful and how far-reaching his fame can be. And it hits kind of a brick wall, as you'll recall, when he goes on a road trip to meet with, a, uh, with F. Murray Abrams, who is, uh, plays in the film the man who brought us Peter, Paul, and Mary, basically. And um, uh, why don't we watch it first, and then we can talk about why it became such a center piece of the movie. Sounds good to me. So we're going we're gonna to step off so that you, you, you don't have to watch the film through us. So inside Louis <laughs> Davis.
So, Skip, I think it, it actually might be uh, useful to just kind of step back for a second and, and explain. So uh, you're a sound designer and a re-recording mixer, and sometimes those functions are performed by separate people. But in, in, in your case, uh, maybe you could just give a little short explanation of, of what those two roles are and how, and how, uh, and how you combine them effectively. Uh, yeah, the uh, sound editor aspect, sound designer, supervising sound editor, there are many titles for that. Uh, you're, you're charged with gathering all the material from all of the various sources, uh, the production sound, all the sound effects that are made for the film, all the sound design. And the music usually comes from Sue and her tribe, Band of Gypsies. They have a, a whole separate operation. Uh, and they bring that to the stage I, I am in no way responsible for the music people. <laughs> Except when you make it. Except in that scene. Um, I did do that cue there, which is phenomenally subtle, but <laughs> but at a key moment. And it was my favorite moment in the film, so they made me put my cue on that section there. <laughs> but um, You're talking about sort of totally what's happening on the, uh, when he's out of the car with the cat? That, that was a, it, it's a guitar sound. Yeah. Actually, I made it for another film, for a film called The Company Men, directed by John Wells, uh, which I mixed. And they were struggling with music at a certain point because Sue wasn't around. <laughs> and uh, um, I really felt an attachment to the film, and so I made a bunch of music, and I called my one of my coworkers, who's an amazing guitar player. I play bass, so I made a lot of bass sounds. So um, I, I asked my friend, uh, Joel, I said, Joel, I've been working on this stuff... Uh, he said, no. <laughs> I'm like, well, what do you mean? He said, no, no, no. It's, it's not. It's going to be just going to make you unhappy. Just don't stop talking about it. <laughs> All right, well, I made a couple of cues. I just thought, you know, give them a listen. What do you think? And then, you know, nope, not going to do that. So then, like, the next day, he called me. Wow, it's amazing, incredible, incredible. I worked <laughs> on it all last night. I stayed until 4 a.m. <laughs> anyway, um, a lot of... Uh, water passed under the highway, and John never got to hear that stuff. A lot of other things happened. Anyway, that stuff was sitting in a can, and we got to this section of the film, which I thought was a key moment with the cat, which uh, Joel and Ethan would, were tortured by, and they hate the idea that the cat, something that they had absolutely no influence over, basically becomes a pivotal thing in the movie. So they would certainly deny that. And if they're here, I'm sure they'll stand up and tell you that I'm wrong, but I thought it was a major stepping off point where he basically has to confront his um, his art, his personality, his uh, ability to always say the wrong thing at the wrong time, uh, and his possibility of here I am at the at this stepping off point where I can either remain a New York artist and play at Kenny's Castaways and um, you know, the, the Greenwich Village Clubs of the day, I forget the one. <laughs> I've already forgotten. Anyway, or go forward to meet um, this producer, which is where he's traveling to in the road trip. And I think at that moment when he's looking at the cat, to me, that's what he's thinking. And he decides to close the door on that whole part of his life and go forward. And so... <laughs> Just like W.C. Fields once said, never work with children. 
Uh, Joel and Ethan feel the same way about animals, and yet they keep writing animals into their to their <laughs> movies. So they're they're kind of a weirdly uh, self-inflicted punishment, I suppose. Is that this cat? Actually, there were like thirty cats in all the Wranglers. So yeah, I saw them. Uh, I saw them in a Q and A at, at Telluride. I think they had just finished the film, and the cat wounds were still very fresh uh, for them, and they were they were very angry at the cat. Hey, yeah. Well, it's an easy mark too. Don't forget. So I, I love that sequence, especially from a sound design standpoint. Yeah. And you know, it's deceptively simple. You know, you're on the side of the road at night, all this stuff. But even, can you talk a little bit about the just the tonalities? I was noticing again, listening that the cars going by almost have some sort of, I want to say like an, an animalistic groan undertone to them as they, it, the whole thing adds up to just a deeply unsettling sort of world that you built in okay. this incredibly simple... Well, that wasn't the intention, but all right. <laughs> all right, so I just made all that up, I guess. Uh, I, didn't no, that, go to gra- right. I didn't go to graduate school, but I'm doing, I'm doing no, that. No, you're now. right that it was meant to be something, but it was, it was meant to be more um, kind of ethereal mm-hmm. than unsettling, but maybe those are one and the same. But yeah, the, as you know, in the movie, it's all about performance, it's all about being, uh, it's all live music, all the film, all the music in the film except for one cue is a sync take. So the sound that you're hearing is the sound that was being performed while the camera was shooting. Everybody knows that, right? So in many cases, like the opening song is, um, Oscar is playing guitar and singing into the microphone that's in the shot right in front of him, and that's the recording that's in the movie, basically. It's that direct. So um, also you know the movie is... uh, a, uh, an ellipse, so what happens for the first part of the movie then is repeated in the second half of the movie. But we ha- there had to be some way to go from the first part of the ellipse to the ellipse, and that was this road trip. And when they were making the film, and it, there's a lot of details that I don't know, as well as I know them, they, they, won't, they don't tell me very much, but uh, <laughs> I know for sure when that footage, the road trip which precedes this, um, was shot as a process shot. So they're in a car, and there's green paint on the windows, and that's all all the stuff passing by is added later. And when they first got back to New York with the footage, or first got back to the editing room from Brooklyn, when uh, they started putting that stuff together, they were very, very dismayed what that material looked like. And But they knew that there had to be a B part to the film. It had to be the opening, the setup with all the music, there had to be something in the middle, and then there had to be a resolution. And as scripted and shot, the B part was this road trip. Hmm. And they were very distraught and very disturbed, and they were very, like, pissed off and other stuff. Like, there's a sequence when the cop comes up and taps on the window and says, I wasn't talking to you, or it says, you, out of the car. And for some reason, none of that track was in the movie. And gradually, I, I would put it in, and I know like that's always a bit major message when it's not there. That means something's up. But there was perfectly suitable track, which is what you hear in the film. And they didn't tell me, they wouldn't talk about it, but they, would, they didn't like that track for some reason. Huh. So this whole sequence had this weird, like, I don't know, don't ask. <laughs> if you want to really want to know, you have to ask Ethan. He's not here now. <laughs> so. Well, this is so I'm, I'm I'm fascinated by this because, and and specifically the way you work with the Coens. I mean, uh, I, I'm presuming that you don't really have a traditional sort of spotting session with them, and you know, in, in some cases you would sit down with a director and 
how do you like talk to, it how through. do you, uh, yeah, talk it through, but are, are you, do you talk with the Coens about like what, what emotionally is supposed to be happening in a, in a specific sequence or are they literally just giving you direction about? Well, we mostly talk through our lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, we, we, there is a tradition where you go through the movie with the filmmakers and the editor usually and everybody, the composer, everyone who's interested is there and we're talking about ideas and what if we did that and maybe there could be some thunder there even though there's no rain. I don't know, these kind of basic ideas about the drama and what's important to the movie and what's important to the composer. I, I really want to work on this sequence here so you sound guys stay back, lay off of that. You know, that it's a very... Um, very constructive, very adult way to work on the movie. We gave up on that a long time ago. <laughs> so what we do instead is, um, while they're, uh, since Roderick James is on set while they're shooting, there's no editing done while they're shooting because Roderick James is Joel and Ethan. So when they finish shooting, they, they have a little trip usually of a week or two, and then they start editing, and then we start editing at the same time. So while they're cutting their very basic assembly, we're working behind them. And we're going through what they've edited and selected and try to figure out what, what they have up their sleeves, what, what's in their minds, and we work out our ideas then as well. Uh, we being my crew, my sound designer, or whomever is working with me on this process. Is, and you start that early. We start that right away. That, that's, not, mm. that's, that's really that's unusual. unusual. Yeah. So this way, when they get to the end of the edit... And they're saying, okay, this is our first cut, basically uh, assembly, first cut, director's cut, whatever it is. Usually that, at that point we're getting ready to show it to Mr. Rudin or Mr. Paramount or somebody who's getting, who paid for it generally is about to be shown the film and they're very upset and uptight, like, uh, you know, agony. But at least we have a mix track and oh. we have a 5-1 mix. so. We're ready to play. We have music. We have sound effects. We have all sorts of stuff. So even at that point, so uh, Carter Burwell is, is uh, obviously their longtime uh, composer uh, as well. So are you working with Carter through that process and getting tracks from him? Are they, are they basic mock-ups or what, so, what, are you, what are you getting? Sometimes there's um, a material, some material that he's done on a, on a synth was a mock-up. Uh, oftentimes uh, his music editor will make temp tracks, representative tracks, Sometimes they'll use um, uh, some source cues or uh, a cue that strikes their fancy that they want Carter to be relating to. Um, sometimes they use Carter's music from other movies. Mm. And that's, that's a pretty traditional idea yeah. that you take. If you're working with Howard Shore, then you use Howard Shore's music from his other films as your temp track. How do composers feel about that? I, I think it's. Is that, it's is that, a, I can yeah, imagine that could be, be unsettling. It's really, for them. really difficult when I have a, hear a composer say to the director, "Stop making me rip myself off." <laughs> and uh -huh. it, that's really that can be very challenging when the composer wants to break out into doing something else, and they're feeling very bound by their own temp. Now, granted, they, it's probably nicer to be bound by your own temp than saying, you know, go rip off Howard Shore. You know, Tony Shapiro or somebody else. You know, right? It's, or it's, I can I, I can imagine there was certainly a period where every yeah, movie was temp, and there's a lot of composers that just don't want to hear temp at all. But it's unusual in that normally all these things happen much later, so that 
a composer will have a choice about whether they're going to listen to temp or not temp. I mean, the, the way that merges together with a team that knows each other is fantastic. I, can I say one Cohen brother thing, which was my favorite, besides the music, when the pennies roll across the floor. In Blood Simple. <laughs> in Blood Simple <laughs> was about my most favorite sequence, and I remember it so. Do you all remember that? Do you all remember Blood Simple? And there's a great scene with this jar of pennies, and I'm sure that was a lot, the sound on that. And the way that it rolled. Do you remember that I sequence? Do, yeah, oh, yeah. it's fantastic. I just had to say, that's one of my favorite sequences, sound and thank the way you. that music and sound roll on that. I shouldn't take credit for it, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Susan, what's, uh, can you explain just a little bit about the role of the music supervisor and, and, and where, when your involvement begins and, and how it yeah, tracks Yeah, the role of the music supervisor really changes with the director and depending on what a director's needs are. Um, but when I worked in a couple of films with Robert Altman, which we did the same, everything was live. We were, so all the work was done in front, we're clearing, and, and Bob Altman likes to shoot, he likes to shoot everything as it is in the scene. So we're hiding microphones and doing things in shortcuts in Kansas City where, where we're rolling a truck with 72 tracks out there. But my job really... So I'm, okay, I'm, yeah. I'm confused. So he's actually playing music on the set? Yeah. So he's decided before he shoots the music cues that he wants? Yeah. So obviously that works with source music, but how do you handle score that way? Well, in, the, in those films, we scored later. We okay. score all the music later, but we actually made, for shortcuts, we made all the score out of the instrumental versions of the tracks that we wow. shot live. Okay. Okay. So it's a, it was a very cohesive process. But as a job definition, as a music supervisor, I really oversee the music department. I help a director find a composer. I help them find the source material. I'm also very responsible for coming up with idea, marketing ideas about, oh, we can get this song and this track to uh, make a single. That, that isn't as much as, you know, the record industry's changed, so that's not as much as of what we do now, but it was also like, how do you get a good recording of a new track so you can market your movie? We did an American Hustle. I have a version of White Rabbit in Arabic, which we had a lot of fun with. <laughs> um, but it's a period film. And then all the licensing and the rights, which are a huge part of to make sure that everything is buttoned up, legal, clear. Um, it's So it's all, the whole department, it, but it's really about... Uh, facilitating a director's vision. Mm -hmm. And Julian Schnabel loves music, loves, knows what he wants, and I'm really there guiding him along to help him. I've done all his films guiding him along. Where Little Miss Sunshine, I came in because the directors had an idea that the producers weren't comfortable with, which was an unknown baby band that nobody knew called Devochka back then, and they wanted them to do the music, and the producers were like... No, you know, this is crazy. And they hired me to get rid of that idea. And what I did was make that idea work by bringing in Michael Dana and putting it together a team to give the producers some comfort and have this band have the freedom of not worrying about all the things. So they worked as a team. It was sort of like the paint and the painters. Yeah. Well, why don't we take a look at, uh, at the, the clip from Girl Fight? 
and yeah, and, and this is a really, really independent, low, low budget film. And so, um, pay attention to what music can do if you kind of every now and again watch it and then pretend like the music's not there and just look at what's going on. The music really carries. Yeah, and good. a very, very young Teddy Shapiro. <laughs> uh, so, girl fight, please. So obviously that was a, an amazing piece of music. What's the story with that, and how did that sequence come together? Well, that, this was really fun. This is Karen Kusama's very first film, and I, and I was a pretty young super... This was a little while ago, so I hadn't done a lot. This was back when record deals, when you could actually make amazing record deals. I think we had the record soundtrack ended up being more valuable than the film in terms of the... We had Fat Joe and... And pink, and we had everybody was in the soundtrack. It ended up being a huge soundtrack. But what I like about it is the score. Um, the movie was produced by John Sales, and he always uses the same um, composer, a guy named Mason Darren out of Boston. And when Karin made the movie, John gave him that. Can, John said, "Here, Karin, use this composer." And he had like little guitar things, and and he wasn't. 
I think it was he was sort of doing it as a favor. And meanwhile, I have this young guy, Teddy Shapiro, hanging out in my office going, isn't there anything for me to do? And Teddy is now a huge Hollywood composer. But back then, he was just a kid hanging out in my office going, don't you have anything for me? And I'm like, maybe he'd be better to try this film. And the film just took off because Ted, we found uh, Mingus's table, uh, a track from Charlie Mingus called uh, Table Dance, and it has all the castanetas. And it became this inspiration. And we had $2 for this score. But I think between the castanets and the piano and coming up with this whole um, rhythm that felt right in, in with all our Santana tracks and our Fat Joe tracks and, and Cuban Link, and we had lots of hip-hop, and, and it, it just ended up being a really fun thing. But it made Teddy's music made, and his enthusiasm, which is why I tell people, always look. I mean, Teddy had only done one little tiny short documentary. But he had the enthusiasm to just dig through and keep working to find that score. And he sat with the director a lot, where, where John's composer was sort of sending things. You know, it wasn't as exciting. You know, it wasn't an exciting job. So I love, you know, marrying composers, and I do that a lot, with young composers that are really going to sit there and dig in and work with you. And, and he did that, and then that, his career took off. Uh, it's it's a great piece of music. Yeah. So, I'm curious if you can speak a little bit. Uh, how do you make decisions in conjunction with the director about about source music versus score? So, uh, and for those who uh, may not be familiar, uh, you know, existing songs. Yeah. Versus an original piece of, of music. How does that how does that decision? Is it lar- is it sometimes driven by economics? Because uh, obviously, you know, sometimes source music can be extremely expensive to to license. Yeah, source music is really, really expensive. So basically, if you know the song, or if your mother knows the song, your grandmother knows the song, you can't afford the song. That's kind of what I, <laughs> sort of what I tell everybody. Like, yeah, if you know it, then you can't afford it. Um, I think the the idea for the, trying to weigh that out is, yeah, definitely for independent films, it's a big thing about economics and also trying to be creative. I try and use the economics always, which is why I love working out of New York, as, as um, the inspiration to go do something new, like get find the young teddies and find people like that. So using those financial obstacles to say, well, we don't need to spend you know, this much on a composer. Let's give somebody an opportunity and put more money into the source budget. And then with people like David O'Russell, who just, you know, score is very tough for him. And, and as well as Julian Schnabel, as well as Jean-Marc Bellier, who I'm working with. I have a lot of directors that don't use a lot of score. And, um, well, that's, I mean, I'm certainly, you know, I'm seeing that in, in, the, in the younger filmmakers, in the independent world especially. There seems to be a sort of oftentimes an allergy to score. Uh, I don't know if there's a perception that it's, that it's manipulative or... Uh... I think it's scary. I think doing score is really scary because when people take a piece of source, they're putting it in the film and they kind of can get it back and gauge it. Sitting, it takes a lot of time to... And this is the problem I'm running into, and I'm sure you're seeing this as well now, is that as long as the technology has people editing and editing and editing and editing... 
I'm finding less and less time that people want to put into sitting there carving a score. You have to carve it out of, you know, here's the granite, you have to work together. And that's not something I can do on behalf of a director as much as they like to say, well, can't you go over there and sit with Danny and tell him what we want? It's like, no, because it's you. And it's your point of view, and I'll come back with something that you're like, I don't like that. So I, it takes a lot of time. To, and I yeah. think it's really, putting score into films is, is something that people are just really frightened of because it leaves, it's the, in all music, I think music is a place where directors get really scared because it really, really changes the way a scene plays drastically and they've had to already get their head used to what was in their head when they shot the movie. Then you have to accept what the movie is, which may not have what was in your head when you were shooting. And then you, you start to do that. And then along comes my department, and often your department, and we're totally changing the way that a scene plays. Yeah. And that can be difficult. And at the same time, there can be just that magical moment of alchemy the first time you put a, a piece of music that just oh, works yeah. and suddenly everything comes to life. It but music is a point of view. And I had this great, I was working with Phil Hoffman on Jacko's Boating. And we had this wonderful dialogue on his, his first film that he directed. And we were sitting together and we were watching the scene. And there was source music was going to be in the room, but I had two different kinds. He goes, well, what have you got? And I said, well, this is the music for her point of view, so I'm playing music from the internal point of view, like not what we're seeing, what that character's thinking, or it's going to be from outside. We're just going to all be sitting here royalistically watching what's happening in the scene, and music does that. It either puts you in the room or out of the room. And it's a really interesting. And he goes, what do you mean? I'm going, we'll play that one. And then all you're doing is watching her little, tiny little expressions of what's going on in her face become much more meaningful when you're playing music from her point of view. And you're not paying attention to the rest of the room. Or I'm playing it big, and we're all just sitting back watching what's going on in the scene. And as an actor and as a director, he was like, I never really thought about music having a point of view. I said, it totally shifts how you focus. That's a director's job. All I can do is say, here, how do you want to feel? Do you want to feel happy? Do you want to feel sad? Do you want to be scared? And, and we do that same way. So that's the way, that's, that's the way you approach, I mean, when you do a spotting session with a director yeah. and go through the film, you're, you're talking about, uh, uh, unlike the way you talk with the, with the Coens, apparently through, through lawyers. <laughs> uh, but so you're talking about, like, what's the, what's, the, what's the emotional beats that are happening here and how do you want yeah. the audience to and feel? and tempo and energy, because what, I, what we do with music will absolutely change the rhythm of a cut. So all I can say is just because you like it in that one little scene, you got to always step back and run it through from a long distance back to make sure that it's going to hold up. Because I can love something in a sequence and then put it into the run of the film and go, oh, it just threw me right out of the movie. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Yeah. So, Skip... I, one of the one of the uh, reasons that I wanted to put this panel together, I'm always fascinated by the question from a director's standpoint about how do you how do you dis, how you p pick and choose, 
you know, the certain moments should be driven by score or music. Arm wrestling. Arm, well, <laughs> that, that may very well be the case. And then certain, you know, moments are driven by sound design and, and that kind of tonal element. So uh, in your experience, how, does, how do those decisions um, get made? I've seen oftentimes on the mixing stage there's sort of a tug of war between the, between the, the sound, uh, you know, the effects department and the music department. It is absolutely a, it's a battle, and um, it, unfortunately, we work in on separate corners. So the music and the sound effects people are not paying attention to each other at all until we come to the stage, and then we have this gigantic collision because everybody's covered everything, and everyone thinks what they're doing is better than what the other people did, and it is a really unfortunate thing that we're tried to uh, get a grip on with the Coens and other filmmakers that we work with in a similar fashion where we build it as we go. And it's difficult because if you have a recorded score, it's not going to be available till later in the process because um, you want to re- try to record the score to the last version possible the, the, towards the end of the film. And that way you won't have to recut and remix or even re- record score because the picture has changed during the editing process. So... Um, by nature, that's all going to happen on the last, very last minute, usually right at the end, usually while we're mixing the movie. Mm-hmm. The score is being recorded, mixed, and handed over on the day. So um, the temp track can be very uh, effective. If, it, if everyone's working together on the temp track, you can have something that's representative that can help guide. Like, well, clearly now we have, you know, this bombastic sound of uh, music you hear, the sound effects are going to be either unimportant or just as an accent. They're certainly not going to drive the scene if we have this giant epic piece here. So that means we can hi- just have the, the highlights, things that you would hear uh, that would work with the score. By the way, the third possibility is that the sound department and the music department would work together, which I do with Carter quite often, where basically when we have an epic sequence, we say what's going to happen now and he says, well, I was thinking about doing this. And we said, okay, well, then if you were going to do those low drum sounds, we won't have our low thumper sounds we were right. going to have in here, so we'll look clear out you're, for each other. You're dividing up the real estate. Um, but but uh, even that, that, that sequence in Lewin Davis, it, I'm kind of curious about like the, the, the discussions that happened with that because it's, I could have made an argument that that roadside sequence would have been a great place for score. Um, but it obviously works tremendously well with the tonal elements of, of the sound. You put design. your finger on a sore spot there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, detail. Uh, we can all be spectating the the um, discussions between Joel and Ethan, T-Bone Burnett, and Carter Burwell about what Carter Burwell's uh, function would be on the film. Because Carter, like me, has worked on, now he's worked on almost all of the Coen Brothers movies. And T-Bone is sort of a um, gigantic new kid on the block. He's been around since um, uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And um, some people in the group were saying, it's a music film, it's all about music, there's music everywhere, Um, we don't need any more music. We can't have another style of music. It's too hard for the film to carry. It's asking too much of the film. These were the, ar- the discussions and the arguments of the day. I'm sure you've heard that a few times. And I think Carter wisely um, said, I'm not sure what I could add to this, not being privy to that discussion, but, but figuring out 
that that discussion had happened. And I think he correctly said, uh, you know, you got a lot of music there. What could I possibly, how can I make that better? Mm. I mean, it's really Bob Dylan, in essence, you know, and, and all of his buddies mm. of the day. I'm not Bob Dylan. I don't want to do folk music to go with this. We talked about it, and I was, I said, I, I was in favor of having more uh, music like, uh, like um, Lewin playing guitar as a kind of a connective idea. Uh, there are some places where I thought it could have been a, a nice, and that's what ultimately led, led me to the music thing that I did for that sequence, was the idea of having more guitar. And then they said, well, it's either got to be actually songs that Dave Van Rock was playing at the time, or it's going to be another layer. So no. And um, it is um, a difficult thing to have, I'm sure, to have a music movie and then put score on top of that. It would be uh, thematically and um, just sort of like a point of view. What, what are we doing here? I mean, there's no way you could have a score cue in that sequence without it drawing attention and knocking the audience out of the, the sequence because there isn't any other music in the film. Right. Uh, it's as simple, it was as simple ultimately as that. So in that case, it was a rule that, that worked for this, for this film. I, I didn't realize that there's actually no score in it at all. No. It was, it was basically decided on Here's that cue. merit. My, cue. my one cue. <laughs> if you want to call it a cue. Um, why don't we take a look at the uh, American Hustle okay. uh, clip? Do you want to set this up, or should yeah. we just watch it? And uh, this is not how to be creative with pre score that exists. That, um, that so it's just like another tool that people can think about when if you don't have time to uh, find you know to go and play with some really fun old archives. And this is a piece of music that from a 1974 erotica film. <laughs> which I bet nobody knows. Thank you. 
get that one. Yeah, I want that. So that was that was at least three different pieces of music. Yeah, I didn't realize it started that soon. So the the the, the temp score, the, not temp score, the old. So I'm using a piece of score from a 1974 film in that whole that piano that goes into the big screens um, is something that I and I did that a lot in Silver Lining Playbook. There are tons and tons of old Italian scores throughout that movie that um, you recognize, but it's a really fun way to go and get something unique and different uh, that uh, we just, it, it was a hard scene. That The scene was very difficult. The scene with Jennifer was a very difficult to find the right tone for that scene. And then obviously before that we had Ella, and before that we had a Jeplin piece of music, and we had a lot of Jeplin in that movie. How much music is is in that film? I mean, my, my my memory of that film is that it's 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 obviously it's a big sprawling, almost operatic film. But my memory of it is that there's tons of music so it in it. Wall to wall songs. And how much score? Like six minutes. Six minutes of score. Wow. Yeah, not for lack of effort. <laughs> it just ended up being, you know, Danny Elfman scored it, and and he and he was really. Um, 
You know, we just, we, we just, the, the, everything that, that David loved just ended up really being a lot of these old textures. And, and, and Danny was, had worked with us on Silver Lining Playbook, and he and David are great friends. And, you know, he, he, we tried lots of different things together, and he's an amazing composer. We just couldn't, you know, everything that David wanted had that really old, oldie sound. And you just, you know, Danny's like, just get Blue Moon. I don't want to remake it. It already exists. So mm. that's what we really ended up. And you had the resources, and you could afford it. Yeah, I mean, you <clears> could <throat> take American Hustle and could have scored it like a like a thriller film. But but David really likes the. To have those big shifts and changes, and he uses source very broadly. Mm-hmm. How I, I would add to that <clears throat> that uh, Marty Scorsese's version of American Hustle that he did twice, uh, Goodfellas and Casino, had a similar um, affinity towards existing music cues rather than score cues, and um, I think there's kind of a natural association of time and place in all three films that lends itself to, the, to this type of music rather than having a, an overall score. It's pretty much like Lewin Davis, where you have set up a sort of time and place and um, a lot of associations are made because of that. And to try to, to come bring to that another comment is sort of a dangerous zone, I think, to these two filmmakers on this type of film. Specifically on... But you're talking about... American Hustle, Goodfellas, and Casino are really, to me, are the same film. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and, and David re- obviously really grew up in just, you know, a huge Scorsese fan. And I think that, um, you know, this scene was also one of the challenges about how to not make it feel like a Scorsese movie. So <laughs> that's, a, that's, you know, and though it always was going to feel, because the, I think, uh, because Marty always had that, you know, footprint of using music in that way, and he just kind of took that and put it like on speed, which is it's mm. just wall to wall source and 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 beautiful themes by Danny at the at the beginning of the movie, and then one thing, but the, we just didn't have any room for score. Yeah, interesting. So I know we've got to. How are we doing on time? What's that? We still get to. Okay, so I do. Uh, let's take a look at the, uh, the the clip from the man who wasn't there, uh, which is a really interesting piece of work. Do you want to set this up? I may have seen that film, The Man Who Wasn't There, Billy Bob Thornton's finest Coen brother movie. Okay. <laughs> it's um, uh, I should preface this by saying, if you, unfortunately, we're watching the end of the movie, so it's the the the. the oh, it's the, a spoiler! Spoiler alert! Yeah, this, this so, ruins it for everyone who hasn't seen the movie. I don't feel bad about spoiling because the movie's ten years a old. A long time so ago, it's, on, it's on you guys. Before now already. Okay, here's the setup. We did a new version of um, Blood Simple in 2000, and it played at the Austin Film Festival. And while we're waiting backstage. Well, they had played the new version of the movie, which was a little bit shorter and had a 5-1 soundtrack instead of Bono. And um, they were setting up and changing around the stage in a really nice theater there. And we were standing backstage, Joel and Ethan and John Getz and Emmett Walsh and Fran McDormand and me and uh, Ann Richards, the ex-governor of Texas, who was just as fantastic. She was very instrumental in the 
Film Festival and the uh, Film Financing Program in Texas and in Blood Simple. So she introduced us, and she, we were chatting backstage, and she said to Joel, uh, so what are you guys working on now? She talked like she's got the smoky, uh, whiskey voice. And Joel said, uh, it's like this movie that um, takes place in the 60s in California, and there's like some crime things that happen, and the, he's a barber, and you know, then there's a spaceship, and all of a sudden she's looking at him. <laughs> I'm trying real hard to get excited about this. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So this is the wind-up of that story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Ladies and gentlemen, members of the jury, citizens of Santa Rosa, we've just heard from the district attorney a rather lurid description of a truly despicable man. i got to hand it to him. He tossed a lot of sand in their eyes. He talked about how I'd lost my place in the universe. How I was too ordinary to be the criminal mastermind the DA made me out to be. How there was some greater scheme at work that the state had yet to unravel. And he threw in some of the old truth stuff he hadn't had a chance to trot out for Doris. He told them to look at me. Look at me close. But the closer they looked, the less sense of it all makes. This bar. That I wasn't the kind of guy to kill a guy. That I was the barber, for Christ's sake. I was just like them. An ordinary man. Guilty of living in a world that had no place for me, yeah. Guilty of wanting to be a dry cleaner, sure. But not of murder. Most specifically, this is the barber's dilemma. For he is... Modern man. He said I was modern man. And if they voted to convict me, well, they'd be practically cinching the noose around their own necks. He told them to look not at the facts, but at the meaning of the facts. And then he said the facts had no meaning. It was a pretty good speech. And he even had me going until Frankie interrupted it. What kind of man are you? What kind? Well, he got his mistrial, but the well had run dry. There was nothing left to mortgage. Reed and Schneider went home, and the court appointed Lloyd Garraway and threw me on the mercy of the court. Your Honor, we plead guilty with extenuating circumstances. It was my only chance, he said. I guess that meant I never had a chance. Certain facts have been clearly... He wasn't buying any of that modern man stuff. Or the uncertainty stuff. Or any of the mercy stuff either. <laughs> no, he was going by the book. And the book said, I got the chair. He has forfeited the right to his own life. So here I am. At first I didn't know how I got here. I knew step by step, of course. Which is what I've told you step by step but I couldn't see any pattern now that I'm near the end I'm glad that this men's magazine paid me to tell my story writing it has helped me sort it all out they're paying me five cents a word so you'll pardon me if sometimes I've told you more than you wanted to know but now all the disconnected things seem to hook up that's the funny thing about going away 
knowing the date you're going to die. And the men's magazine wanted me to tell how that felt. also asked about remorse. Yeah, I guess I'm sorry about the pain I caused other people. But I don't regret anything. Not a thing. I used to. I used to regret being the barber.
So, Skip, you surprised me with, a few weeks ago when we were talking about clips to show, and, and <clears throat> you mentioned this movie and, and that particular sequence, and you said something I found really interesting. You said that you felt it was the best work that you and the Coens had done together. Uh, and I'm, I'm just curious. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's an amazing, um, uh, fantastic sequence. Beethoven. Uh, fantastic. Why do, you, uh, why do you think it, 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 would, it that worked so well? Well, I think... Um, I think we were very successful in the <clears throat> the combination, the mixture and the balance of music and sound effects. And it worked with the picture and the, the message. And, um, of course, the amazing voice of Billy Bob Thornton, incredible uh, voice that he brought to the party. I wanted to ask you, how was that voiceover, I mean, do you remember, how, well, how was recording. it mic'd and how did you mix it? Because I, I, I felt watching it like his voice is actually in my in head, head. Yeah. in a really powerful way. Uh, well, we did, I worked on a lot of movies, I've worked on many movies that have, uh, are in essence, a story being told very directly and have voiceover like The Last Temptation of Christ and Goodfellas, certainly, and this movie, and... Um, We've done a lot of experimenting on with the, uh, using different microphones, using multiple microphones. And, um, of course, Apocalypse Now is, is a touchstone because it has an amazing voiceover that's both uh, like this movie where you have a real personality in the voice, but it's also a beautifully written voiceover. By, it was written by Malcolm, Michael Hare. Um, but <clears throat> the idea that you have a, a, a very direct... <clears throat> relationship to the story where the uh, person who is uh, telling the story is basically looking at you and telling you the story is something I would just think is a fantastic uh, idea. It's kind of a, um, uh, turns the idea of cinema upside down because it's uh, sort of more theatrical and less cinematic and yet very hardly, I can't really imagine a theater piece where a person stands on the stage unless it's like a monologue like Mark Twain or something or Spalding Gray, um, it's like a it's a trick basically where the audience you can you can be shown things and being told things. One of the things about voiceover is so lovely is that you can say, "Well, at that moment I was thinking this," and of course you would never say that dramatically. An actor would never say, "Well, what you said there makes me feel very angry." I mean that just doesn't work uh, in our concept of what theater is, um, but. Um, I, I just think that the film has a fantastic um, uh, delivery mechanism where you've got this Billy Bob who's playing an odd sort of role in a very stoic way. Uh, James Gandolfini is fantastic. Fran McDormand is fantastic. Um, Tony Shalhoub is amazing. And uh, it's in black and white, so it's a little offsetting, and it's a period piece, so the things are the, the way people are dressing is sort of a bit of a hard to get, your, get a handle on. And all those things come together, I think, in a really fantastic way. It's so intimate. It is, because really of his voice, right? Yeah, I think what the voiceover mm. being so intimate, which is hard to get that quality. Yeah. You know, that's what works, is that you feel like he's just talking to you. Right. That's the quality about it that makes you, <clears throat> pulls you into that scene. You said, was there a lot of experimentation in terms of how to record that voiceover? Uh, as I recall, um, Peter did it on set, um, but I, I got to ask him about that, and I, I'm pretty sure they used a um, a traditional voiceover microphone, a Neumann microphone, right. and um, 
I spent a ton of time getting it to sound really intimate and close up. And he yeah, has in right. his voice, he has a lot of kind of gravelly sort of sound. Yeah, he's not a loud talker to begin with. So. And he's a smoker, so that helps as well. Right. Gets into that smoking <laughs> thing. Oh, sorry. So uh, I'm getting the cue. We've got to we've got to wrap up, but I want to just to open it up to the audience, and we'll take a, we'll take a few questions for uh, Skip and Susan, if anybody has one. I can't see very well, so I, I see no questions. There's a person. It's always one break, so I'll just start up. Right. <laughs> Hello. Um, I actually had a question mainly for, um, for Skip. Um, so with the advent of more of an electronic score coming into play, do you find yourself or have you been in a situation where you really do have to work more closely with a composer because their score ends up becoming kind of sound design within itself? Or what is your thought on this? I think that, that um, the sound design idea, I think, is a kind of a free-for-all, and everyone have at it. And uh, I, I, I know that that works best for the film and for the filmmaker. You know, the idea, the old-fashioned idea that there's a lot of stuff to sort out, and how does that work, or maybe that plus that. And um, sound design being um, very uh, personal, something you think is working fantastically well, oftentimes is not, uh, you're, you're like a fan club of one of that thing. So the more the merrier, I, I would say. That answer your question. I hope. But the composer, but the composer's not welcome on your on your mixing. Oh no, no, not composers. Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Susan, what's the what's been the biggest change in your career uh, regarding movie right uh, music rights? Uh, so the question for uh, the video camera was uh, how over the course of your career, what's been the biggest change in terms of of rights? I, I think, well, when I first started, my job really was marry, the, the record companies would come and, and I would be out like shopping for a label to marry with the movie, like Girl Fight. I actually took that around and then I had bidding war on people that wanted to put music into it. In terms of the actual clearing the rights, the, the, it's always money. The money, the mergers are not helping life at all. I mean, we just have less and less. Everybody's sort of, there's only three companies now. So you don't have as much competition and prices can get set. And uh, you're, when you've got companies holding out, you know, over at least two-thirds of all the copyrights for the major things that we know... That's really so. That's really difficult for the known catalog, and on the flip side, all the young artists coming up from the mid '90s, certainly maybe later than that, and then early 2000 on, none of them have signed deals, and you can do a lot of them directly, or they have these little small deals. So it's it's kind of like it's everything's an extreme. There's like too much and too little over here. Is there any flex pricing from the from the you know the big conglomerate. So, will they give you a break if you're doing a low budget independent film, as opposed to yeah, you to know, a, a big degree? Film? But the corporations have you know what they consider their bottom line, which for little movies, their bottom line is if you have more than two cues, it's going to be the whole music budget. Right. So you've got to be really. People don't deal in hundreds of dollars. They just there isn't such a thing for real. They'll work with you on doing like payment plans, like a layaway plan where you can which I use a lot for small movies. We put a little money down, but that little money down is still in the thousands of dollars, and then you have to pay for the rights of the recording and the rights of the publishing, and those, those two things add up 
can be $5,000 just to get a deposit down. And that's a lot for a, for small films. So it's, it's really about looking for people that own their rights. The other thing that's just beginning to happen a lot now is the unions coming and wanting to get repaid for all of their recordings. So you have a song that was recorded in 1970 uh, with a band, and if they can provide the sheet, you've got to pay all those musicians all over again, just like they were making the song again. And that's a whole new layer of, of complication because everybody's fighting about who actually owes that money. It's, it's enormous. And for orchestral stuff, it's in, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars in re-recording fees. So it's, it's, you know, where everybody's trying to figure it out. There's not enough money to go around. Yeah. Time for one more. Yeah. In the, in Shout it out. Shout. Hi. Uh, I was wondering, mostly a uh, question for Susan. Uh, in two specific movies you worked on, uh, we've talked about um, American Hustle and how the music uh, is really important in that movie and how you got so many different artists as well. And it feels like so many different scenes um, has this music video feel to them. Uh, so as opposed to another, video, another uh, movie you uh, worked on, which is Shortcuts, uh, which... If I remember correctly, you have one uh, artist in, in the score mostly. So if you talk about the experience, which is, uh, it seems really different in those two types of movie, one artist or a whole uh, bunch of artists. Well, Shortcut actually is one artist singing, but we had a lot of artists writing the original songs for that character. And that from everyone from the edge of U2 back in the day to Elvis Costello. So a lot of people. So I'm working with artists in another way. I, I like it all. I really love the architecture of score, too. So I, I, I'm not a lot of music supervisors get as hands-on in score. And some people love that. And some composers are like, oh, yeah, yeah. But I love that whole working it out and, and seeing it. I think that... Experiment. I'm always like a challenge and experiment, and challenge and experiment. And uh, the most important thing for be it American Hustle and or the, is that you you have whomever you're working with, you have to look at all of these as collaborations between artists. So if I've got Jeff Lynne or Elton John or whomever, I want to make sure that they are really happy with the way their music is being used before money gets talked about. Do you like it? I just sat and showed Paul Simon's people uh, a new Jean-Marc Vallier film and said, I just want to know before we get into it, do you like it? Do you want to be a part of this process? It's all, it's, it's all about always reminding that I'm only as good as the people I'm collaborating with, bringing with. I, I'm just a facilitator of marrying artists, and that be it composers or being... Uh, songs that are there, I just really, the most important thing is that people, you know, know and respect and love what we're doing. Well said. Well, we're out of time. So I wanted to thank our panelists, uh, Skip thank and you. Susan. You're and thank Thanks you guys for coming out. <laughs>